0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about protesting. I want to start with a quote from Diana Butler Bass. Although the United States was a solid majority Protestant nation for most of its history, Protestantism has fallen on hard times of late. The once commanding two-third Protestant majority has slipped to a bare 50% of the population, with many who are part of Protestant churches unsure about the meaning of the word the origin of their traditions, or the basic insights of Protestant theology. Many people eschew the term itself, favoring more generic religious language to describe their faith, wondering if a 500-year-old argument about Catholic theology in the Bible has anything to do with today's world. It strikes me as interesting that those who followed the teachings of the New Reform Movement did not come to be known as reformists, Rather, the moniker that stuck was Protestant. Luther and his associates were protesters rather than reformers. They stood up against the religious conventions of the day, arguing on behalf of those suffering under religious, social, and economic oppression. These religious protesters accused the church of their day of being too rich, too political, in thrall to kings and princes, having sold its soul to the powerful." The original Protestants preached, taught, and argued for freedom, spiritual, economic, and political, and for God's justice to be embodied in the church and the world. It's time to put the protest back into Protestantism. introduction there was from a website called Pathos.com, wwwp and in the blog section the author diana butler bass i'm going to let her finish the part of her blog that i jumped into called putting the protest back into protestant the heart of protestantism is the courage to challenge injustice and to give voice to those who have no voice Protestantism opened access for all people to experience God's grace and God's bounty, not only spiritually, but actually. The early Protestants believed that they were not only creating a new church, but they were creating a new world, one that would resemble more fully God's desire for humanity. The original Protestant impulse was to resist powers of worldly dominion and domination in favor of the power of God's spirit to transform human hearts and society. Protestants were not content with the status quo. They felt a deep discomfort within. They knew things were not right, and they set out to change the world. In the United States, Protestantism has often been torn between the impulse to protest, the abolition movement, women's rights movements, the civil rights movement, and the complacency of content— by virtue of being a majority religion. After all, if you are the largest religious group in society, if you shape the culture, what do you protest? Yourself? Protestant success in the United States has always been a bit at odds with the primary impulse of the faith to resist convention in favor of challenging injustice. Now, however, as part of the religious plurality and no longer the majority faith, Protestants can rediscover the courageous part of their identity, too long hidden, under the veneer of cultural success. Protestant churches would benefit by starting a church-based protest movement to challenge two things, bad government and cruel capitalism. First, far too long, the secular argument about government has been small government versus big government. Protestant theology, however, offers a completely different insight. It isn't the size of government that is problematic. The issue is whether government is good or bad. Good government reflects the principles of neighborliness, creates a sense of common belief, serves and listens to all of its people. Bad government serves only itself or an elite, cut off from any idea of a common good and works to maintain its interests instead of an ethical vision for society. Protestants would do well to protest against bad government and not simply take sides in a false argument between small and big government. We need to protest for good government. Second, we need to protest cruel capitalism, the sort of capitalism that is based on shareholder profits alone, the sort of capitalism that has flourished unchecked and unregulated in the last 30 years in the West, a deeply amoral economic system that has destroyed untold lives in the process. But, at the very same time, we can protest for a different sort of capitalism, a nurturing capitalism a capitalism that recognizes the diversity of environmental, spiritual, social, communal, and intellectual capital as part of a universal economy of human flourishing. What would it mean if financial capital were merely a small part of an interconnected web of capital that nurtured life for all instead of amassing resources for a few? Protestants need to be protesting cruel capitalism while envisioning and working toward a deeper and more embracing vision of nurturing capitalism. So, Protestant friends, the world needs you. You are not only a quaint Lutheran church quietly observing convention on the Great Plains. You are the heirs of those who once took to the streets to bring about God's reign here on earth. You resisted oppression you stood for justice. Do that again. Please. The world needs protesters, not just in Zuccotti Park, but we need to hear the howls of protest against bad government and cruel capitalism from the pulpits and pews of every mainline church in this nation. We need to hear you proclaim God's dream of good government and a nurturing economy for all. Go for it. Make your ancestors proud. Those are the words of Diana Butler Bass in her blog on www.patheos.com called Putting the Protest Back in Protestantism. She has some concepts there that I agree with and a technique that I think I could get behind. Now, this is the first article that I've read of hers that I'm aware of. Perhaps it won't be the last. But the idea in my mind is that we are uh, ditch to ditch sometimes as a society. We make the mistake of going from one extreme to the other, as if to criticize capitalism is to embrace some sort of, you know, opposite of capitalism, as if it's impossible to criticize something we like, as if it's impossible for our system to get better. I want to echo the words she shared about the, the relationship of shareholder to customer and a concept that American business has almost completely lost track of, the concept of stakeholder. Now, as an introduction to this, first, let me say that perhaps you might consider the article that I just read to be a liberal point of view. I don't know that that's true. I haven't studied her politics, but I'm about to offer what we would by any measure consider to be a conservative point of view, or at least a point of view coming from a conservative direction. This is an article that I saw published in uh, a retail systems research blog called a New, a New Model for Industry Research. So this is a business publication online um, written by a, a business author, a man named Brian Kilcourse. And I'm going to share liberally from his article because I found the, the concepts that he has there and the book that he refers to as having application, not just in business, but also in the church. For today's inappropriate conversation, though, I'm going to focus on business and on politics. And uh, when I get done, I'm hoping I can circle back around and address a little bit the issue of political corruption, because I think that the area in her blog that I agree with the most is actually the distinction between good and bad government, that certainly all of us can be opposed to corruption and the right way for my conservative friends my small government, libertarian type friends, to shrink the size of the current governments in our country, you know, state, local, and federal, would be to eliminate the corruption. If we simply eliminated the influence of lobbyists in the process of more or less buying votes and buying influence, if you wiped all that away, government would instantaneously get smaller. We might have to figure out how to do government again because there might not be government left at all, at least the potential exists. But first, in the realm of business. Here's the words of Brian Kilcourse. Thomas D. D., professor of organizational behavior at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business, published a piece in the July and August 2009 edition of the Harvard Business Review entitled, Shareholders First, Not So Fast. In the article, Dee brought forward the argument that the recent economic hard times can partially be attributed to the dominance of CEO concern for the interests of the shareholder over other stakeholders, employees, and customers. Professor D states, quoting, It's clear that the limits of shareholder capitalism are showing themselves like many cracks in the ages-old foundations of a house. In the 1950s and 1960s, the stakeholder was king. CEOs saw their role as being one of balancing the interests of the various groups that touched their companies, customers, employees, suppliers, shareholders, and the community at large. This reflected the executives' sophisticated understanding not only of their role as stewards of the valuable resources entrusted to them, but also of their own enlightened self-interest. The idea that shareholders should be preeminent took hold in the 1970s for many reasons. Among them was a widespread belief in the efficiency and intelligence of markets. But the idea that stock markets are invariably efficient and provide accurate estimates of value has been shot down time and time again. Witness the rise over the past few years and the number of earnings restatements filed and the number of companies that have gone from being most admired to most reviled, almost overnight. Back to Kilcourse. The argument about shareholders versus stakeholders isn't new, and it remains unresolved, at least in academic circles. The argument is basically this. What is the purpose of business? According to Milton Friedman, it's to maximize shareholder value. According to management theorist Peter Drucker, it is the creation and exchange of value, profit being an indicator, that a company does this well. Lord John Brown, former BP executive and president of the Royal Academy of Engineering in the UK, says that any successful business is part of society and exists to meet society's needs. Wall Street, of course, is unambiguous. The purpose of corporations is to create wealth for the owners. Since 2008, we've all been living through the results of the unbridled pursuit of wealth at the expense of other considerations. And so, it is beneficial to try to get back to the basic principles now. But the discussion doesn't have to be about social responsibility versus profits. It was Peter Drucker who said in 2003, every social and global issue of our day is a business opportunity in disguise, just waiting for the entrepreneurship and innovation of business, the pragmatism, and the capabilities of good management. In a marvelous new book called Spedan's Partnership, author Peter Cox brings the academic argument down to earth. The purpose of business is explored in the context of the story of John of the John Lewis Partnership. The partnership owns and operates the John Lewis departments and Waitrose grocery stores in the UK. Cox, who retired from the partnership in 2003 as a director of IT for Waitrose, tells the story of the development of the John Lewis model of co-owned business. The company's statement of principles makes it absolutely clear which theory of business the partnership subscribes to, quoting, The partnership's ultimate business purpose is the happiness of all its members through their worthwhile and satisfying employment in a successful business. Because the partnership is owned in trust for its members, they share the responsibilities of ownership as well as its rewards, profit, Knowledge and power. Quote. Cox tells a spellbinding tale of the development of the John Lewis partnership by the son of the founder, Spadan Lewis. I was drawn into the story the way one can be drawn into a good serial drama on TV, even though the success of the partnership is well known. The question, Will they ever get out of this jam, draws the reader through time, right to the present day. And not to spoil the story, but the answer is yes. Consider these facts. For the last 50 years, every partner has been paid an average bonus equal to eight weeks' pay. And in spite of the recent harsh economic times, the partnership reported year-over-year sales growth in 2010 of over 12% and 15% growth in operating profit. Cox suggests in the prologue to the book that the applicability of the John Lewis model is a current point of discussion in the U.K., In a conversation with Peter last week, he explained further, quoting, Since the 2010 election in the UK, each political party has said that they have to learn something from the John Lewis model. But I'm not sure they know what they meant. Jumping forward in the article. As relates to the capital structure, the partnership truly is a partnership. The company is owned by its employees. Bonuses are tied to something tangible. And everyone participates. The effect of this ownership isn't theoretical. It's very real. Even on the shop floor, if someone is wasting time or money, he's wasting his colleagues' time and money, explains the author. People will stop and say, why are you doing that? It's not yours. It's ours. In an anecdote of how seriously people take the notion of shared ownership, the book mentions that Spadan always brought his own pens so as not to borrow one from the shop. Breaking apart for a second, I remember having a conversation with a colleague many years ago where at the time the company that I worked for was publicly owned, and I was both an employee and a stockholder. I was part of an employee stock plan at the time, and there was an argument between me and one of my peers as to whether or not uh, that division was doing the right things. It was clear in my mind that they were not doing what was right. They were missing opportunities and that I wanted them to do their job just a little bit better. I called this to my friend's attention and her reaction surprised me. It wasn't a reaction of friendship. It was a reaction that came from um, a sense of being threatened. And her words to me were along the lines of who did I think I was to be meddling in her department or in her business. My answer was plain, simple, cutting, and concise. I'm a stockholder. The sad thing is, I don't think I gave her the best answer. The best answer wasn't necessarily that I'm a stockholder, as if the person sitting across from me in a different office, by virtue of not being part of the employee stock program, had less of a voice in whether we were doing the right thing or the wrong thing. No, I probably should have told her, I'm a stakeholder. I'm part of this organization. And if we're wasting resources, if we're missing opportunities, each and every one of us has a co-ownership in that. So what's going on right now in the Occupy movement? I think one of the things that's going on, uh, represented in both of the articles that I quoted today, is that we're not doing a very good job of being stakeholders. We've decided that somehow the magic of an unfettered capitalist economy will save us. As Christians, I find this particularly offensive because as a Christian, I think we should have a different model about what salvation looks like, and we shouldn't be trusting it to a mathematical economic formula. But even from that point of view, there's an argument that can be made that business for something like 30 or 40 years now has been failing to do its part. It's been taking, but not giving back. I want to play an audio clip that was emailed to me from a company called D.C. Douglas, uh, and it's called, Why Occupy Wall Street? For Reasons.
1: About every 15 to 20 years, we have another crisis. We call them panics. We had different names for them. For 140 years, the pattern is just unmistakable. Then we hit the Great Depression. And coming out of the Great Depression, we put three new regulations in place. Glass-Steagall, which divides our community banks from the Wall Street investment banks, FDIC insurance, and some SEC regulations so you can invest on Wall Street and they can't cheat you too directly. For 50 years, we have no bank failures, no major crises, It works. It gets to be the early 1980s. We go with this idea of let's get rid of regulation. What happens? Late 1980s, savings and loan crisis should have been a warning. Late 1990s, remember long-term capital management, the hedge fund, should have been a warning. Early 2000s, Enron, should have been a warning, but we let it go. And where do we end up? In the biggest crisis since the Great Depression.
0: Fusing together of the idea of banking with inherently risky speculative activity is in my judgment unwise. And we are deliberately and certainly with this legislation moving towards inheriting much greater risk in our financial services industries. We will in 10 years time look back and say, we should not have done that because we forgot the lessons of the past.
2: I made a mistake in presuming that the self-interest of organizations specifically banks and others was such as that they were best capable of protecting their own shareholders we're talking about betting against
0: the very thing that you're selling without disclosing that to that client is there not a conflict in the context of market making that is not a conflict
1: could you give me a yes or no to whether or not you considered yourself To have a duty to act in the best interests of your clients. Who received the $1 trillion in funds that the Federal Reserve has handed out to domestic institutions? He said, I'm not going to tell you. I
0: have a hard time understanding how you have put $2.2 trillion at risk without making those names available. It's long
1: overdue. We need to audit the Federal Reserve. Conservative members of the court ruled corporations have First Amendment rights and that the government cannot impose restrictions on their political speech. It will undoubtedly cripple the ability of ordinary citizens, Congress and the states to adopt even limited measures to protect against corporate domination of the electoral process. There is nobody in this country who got rich on his own. You moved your goods to market on the roads the rest of us paid for. You hired workers the rest of us paid to educate. You built a factory and it turned into something terrific or a great idea. Keep a big hunk of it. But part of the underlying social contract is you take a hunk of that and pay forward for the next kid who comes along.
0: We've gotten off track. I think that might be my biggest concern. We've forgotten that without stakeholders, and certainly without customers, there isn't anything to own stock in. Without the effectiveness of business and the response of customers, there isn't any reason to repay a loan. And we've allowed the machinations of high finance to trump basic common sense. And the worst thing of all is that we have people right now in our country who consider themselves patriotic, who are objecting to being told that the emperor of this country, whether that be our economy, whether that be our CEOs or our politicians or our leadership class, they're objecting to the, to the leader of our country being told he's not wearing any clothes. So am I out there occupying Main Street? No. Am I planning a trip to New York City to to join with people protesting Wall Street? No. I think probably the bigger issue is in Washington, D.C., and I'm not referring to the current administration. I'm referring to a problem that we've had since the 1950s and perhaps even earlier than the 1950s, where perhaps we traded one form of corruption back then for another. But I think what we should be protesting is corruption. And that isn't solely going on on Wall Street, but I will share a quick story, give you a sense of why I'm upset about the focus being all about business versus people, because the stakeholder model tells us that the business is the people, the person running that cash register, the person in the distribution center or the warehouse driving that front end loader or that tow loader. Those are all the company and this we, they mentality has just got to go. I went to a seminar a few years ago. I was actually sent by work. It might be wrong for me to refer to it as being an involuntary thing, but it wasn't all that voluntary, right? And um, it was an all-day thing. And some of, the, some of the speakers that I saw and some of the activities were good, and some of them were, were not so good, right? But one of them I decided to follow up to, and I did a little further personal investigating, because something about it just struck me as strange, the whole concept was that they didn't consider themselves to be day traders, but they were probably almost weak traders, certainly, you know, mid-month traders, and they actually looked down upon day traders as people who were gambling on the market. But essentially, the whole point of the seminar, or at least this piece of the seminar, was that by, by reading the markets properly, by putting in the right kinds of puts and calls, by betting well on companies that are about to fail and betting just as well on companies that are about to succeed, you can make money winning and losing. And it all became about the you know, independent investor's ability to profit off whatever happens in the market, for better or worse. This might be an example of cruel capitalism, as uh, Bass mentioned in the first article I shared today, or it might not. In some ways, though, it struck me as an unsustainable model unsustainable to the point of almost being foolish. The speaker shared a story about a doctor of some sort and described him as somebody that we would have described as a, as a healer, you know, and I was listening to the story where he's propping up this fellow that he's going to use later as a testimonial. And I thought to myself, yeah, I can, I can buy that. You know, somebody who's gone to medical school and does, um, you know, her surgeries on people who are hurt, has a specific set of surgical skills. Undoubtedly, we'd call that person a healer. But in an ironic twist, he got into an accident himself, and in the midst of that accident, I don't remember whether he lost any loved ones or whether he was living alone at the time, but essentially he kind of went through the process of recovering from his own um, surgery and rehabilitation you know, kind of by himself, and one of the things he did to while away his time while he was recovering, was this sort of stock trading activity, trying to read the markets in a way to predict which companies were going to do badly so that you could put a put in against those companies and profit richly if they actually do as badly as you think they're going to do. Or, on the other side, the corresponding activity on uh, a company that you think is going to do extremely well. And he made enough money, allegedly, the testimonial says, he made enough money in the stock market that he no longer needed to be a surgeon quit his job and the rosy picture we were painted of how brilliant this was was the man now no longer had any reason to change out of his pajamas each day he would wake up make himself a cup of coffee and do a little analysis or trading on the market and he made himself more rich that way than he would have had he ever interacted with a patient again and essentially he stopped being a surgeon I bring it up and tell the story, of the, the irony between this person going from being a healer to being not a contributor to society in a very direct way anymore, from being at least on paper, somewhat selfless to being incredibly selfish, because the argument was that all of us could do this. Everybody who isn't already just you know running their own business or, or being an entrepreneur can do the same thing this guy did. And they actually put up numbers to suggest that if you wanted to be part of a, a franchise, you wanted to be a franchise owner in a restaurant or some other company, that that wasn't as good a life course. That wasn't as good of a financial path for you to follow as this sort of, you know, stock market trading activity would be. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, what would happen to our economy if everybody did this for it to be a good idea? It needs to be sustainable. And for it to be sustainable, everybody could do it without our entire economy collapsing. There would literally be nothing left to invest in. All of us would be investing in nothing if that were to occur. Now, if you take a look at the last two or three years and some of the economic problems that we've had, and even before then, you might be able to make an argument that what happened— in 2006, six, seven, and eight, was that we you know, actually paid the consequence for what was essentially trading, investing, and betting on nothing. It didn't exactly work out. And it came out to be one big lie. So to tie back to what I was discussing last week, Christians who have become experts in telling the right lie and be more interested in winning arguments than winning hearts um, and having no interest in winning minds, such as the state of anti, anti-intellectualism in the church overall today, and especially the Protestant church and the evangelical Protestant church more than any other. And Jay um was quoted in last week's show as saying that you hit a certain point when you're living the lie, in that if you aren't lying, you aren't trying. And if the way to succeed is the way of telling lies— then you're actually failing if you don't lie. And morality turns upside down. Not only It's not just that we no longer value the truth and telling the truth and that we tolerate all kinds of deception and lying. It almost becomes, quote-unquote, sinful not to lie anymore. So here we are. We've got a group of people who are protesting all over the United States of America because they know that our country has been ripped off. Ripped off in a gigantic fraud by banks and financial institutions but also ripped off by lobbyists who have paid generous donations to congressmen and those congressmen have passed laws there was a, a story that Dan Carlin shared about a year ago on the Common Sense show about a bank reform legislation that was being you know coming up for a vote in the aftermath of some of the scandalous things that happened in 2006 7 and 8 and one of the congressmen who was going to cast his vote on whether to pass this sweeping reform or not, had an appointment in between the first part of his time on the floor in Congress and the vote itself. And during that appointment, what he had was a quick fundraising lunch. He went downstairs where a group of banks had brought in a bunch of resources and food and people you know, paying $1,000 a plate or whatever, and the banks hand this guy a check for thousands upon thousands of dollars, which he puts in his pocket then goes back to the floor of the U.S. Congress and votes against the reform that would have regulated the activity of that very same set of banks. Is this good government or bad government? Or are we so cynical to call it nothing more than business as usual? My son looked me in the eyes
1: the other day and asked, Pa, when's this war going to be over? I answered him, That one day his children and his children's children will look back and know that four warriors stood and fought
0: and answered geeky trivia so that children everywhere could be free. The names of those heroes fresh on their minds, their tongues, and their tattoos. Omar from Costa Rica, Roe from Washington, and of course their fearless leader, Commander Jason. I'm Kevin from Canada, and this is Atomic Trivia War 9000.
1: ATW9K
0: I'm recording this the week before Election Day in the United States. There's lots of election days, actually, because this being an off-year election, not a year when we're electing members of House of Representatives, not a year when there's a presidential election. We have that to dread or look forward to one year from today. No, but this is a year when a lot of states and local governments have have ballot initiatives because Americans are used to going in voting on the first Tuesday after the first Monday of November. This early November ritual ties in with the national election, so it's not at all unusual for states to put issues on the ballot at this time. Well, tying into this question of whether we're honest enough, whether our government is good enough to be trusted, um, I'll share just a little bit, without going into too much detail, about why I'm frustrated about Election Day and why my intent is to have this podcast posted before Tuesday, before Election Day. You can probably guess where this is heading. There are lots of states in America who are considering voter initiatives, uh, questions on the ballot about whether or not we should continue the practice of allowing public employee unions to negotiate and or strike in the interest of what they would consider their collective bargaining rights. And I'm not going to get into the issue because I think the issue itself is far more complex than we've been asked to comprehend. It's not that we've been asked to consider this in all of its complexity. We haven't. If you're like me, you're in a state where you've gotten no less than an average of a two phone calls a week if not more and a constant barrage of television ads, vote yes, vote no, vote whatever, all in favor of trying to influence us on this issue and all they do is dumb it down and simplify it. Now, to some people this may be um this may be obvious that if, you know, the teachers in your state have a provision right now that every teacher needs to make at least $17,000 a year. And that one of the things that this votes about is overturning that and making it possible for a local community to pay a teacher a lot less than that. You may say, well, that's ridiculous. $17,000 a year you know, is certainly a minimum type number, but it's more complex than that. Because when you're dealing with public employees, what you basically have is a taxpayer negotiating for their own taxpayer-given salaries. You've got a conflict of interest, in my opinion, because you have somebody on both sides of the issue simultaneously. I don't know how we resolve that in the best possible way, but I do know that in the state I live in, I'm unsatisfied with the proposal that's been placed before me as a voter. But that's not what has me riled up. What has me riled up is the lies. Last time I talked about Christians who can't get their truth straight, but what about the politicians who don't even bother? In this case, there was uh, the issue is you know, sort of vote yes, vote no, right? And a woman who was in favor of letting the firefighters and the police officers and the teachers keep their collective bargaining rights as unionized you know, employees put together her own ad based on a testimonial where she essentially said, hey, you know what? I'm a grandmother. Uh, we had a terrible fire. Uh, the firefighters and police officers came and rescued my daughter. I want to support them. I say you should vote this way. And essentially it was you know voting in favor of the union perspective, voting on the liberal side of the issue. Well, what happened with that was that the other point of view, the conservative side of the issue, the people who are in favor of changing the way these particular employees collectively bargain, took – Her ad and literally recut her words through a selective process of, you know, truncation and reorganization and had her speak in favor of their point of view, literally in every sense of the word, putting words in her mouth and putting what she angrily described in news interviews, the wrong words in her mouth. This is probably the most egregious form of lying I think I can remember. I'm used to people making ads where they attack their opponents and paint their opponents in the worst possible light and tell little white lies or even big fat white lies in the process of trying to get that done. But this was actually taking an ordinary citizen, the equivalent of a Joe the Plumber, and twisting her words to make it sound as if she was endorsing the exact opposite opinion. I saw a debate last week between the two sides of this issue. And the politician who was on the conservative side was asked directly if he would at least denounce this practice of misrepresenting this voter's point of view, this lie that was told through that manipulative ad. And the politician said that he couldn't denounce what happened. That's an exact quote. He couldn't denounce what happened. And then he claimed that he hadn't really seen the ad. He hadn't seen it fully and completely enough to speak to it. He was going to dodge The issue. Now, this is all despite being so polished and prepared for the debate itself with talking points and recurring sound bites that, you know, and with the other side being equally guilty of this, of course, it turned the whole spectacle into the same piece of crap we see at the national level. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I don't understand why anybody who has a mind watches national presidential debates. As long as people are excluded from the process at random, as long as violence is threatened against candidates, to prov- uh, other candidates, opposition points of view, to prevent them from even sitting in the audience and watching the spectacle, there's something fundamentally wrong with the way we do debates in this country. None of what I saw in that televised exchange deserved to be dignified with the term debate, especially not when deceivers were using it as a platform to insulate and defend other deceivers. I'm not accusing the man who took the conservative position in that debate of being responsible for monkeying with that ad and, you know, violating that woman's rights. I do have an issue, though, with him being unwilling to say it was wrong. I might be able to meet him halfway and say, you know what, it really isn't his job to apologize. It's probably his job to call out the names of the people who paid for that ad and did the editing job on that ad and ask them to apologize but is it too much to ask you to say that that behavior was wrong? When asked repeatedly, can you at least tell me whether you think this was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? Can you hide behind the fact that, well, I only saw part of the ad. I really wasn't paying that much attention to what happened. No, you can't have my vote and you don't deserve anyone else's vote either. I may sympathize in a lot of ways with the conservative perspective on this issue. But you're going to have to go back to the drawing board, start over, and bring me a more honest proposal, or at least bring me a, de- a proposal that you can defend with some modicum of honesty. There's a fundamental problem when people are willing to betray their conscience and have the temerity to suggest that they're betraying their conscience by voting their conscience. I don't think so. I'm an American. I believe that we are a country forged by protest. We exist because people like Thomas Paine stood up and said, no, you don't. I'm going to protest. Tom Paine took it to the streets. He would go to bars and read excerpts from his book. That's how we conduct ourselves as Americans. And how dare any one side of our political spectrum claim that it is being, quote unquote, truly American and that their opponents are in any way being un-American By standing up and saying, We're fed up with this, we may not have a better answer, but we certainly have a good question. And the good question is, How can bad government be allowed to persist? How can someone who rips off the government and thereby the taxpayer be allowed to persist? Why are we worried about whether a $17,000 minimum salary for a teacher is quote unquote too much and these freeloaders with their with their caps on how much they pay for benefits, are wrecking our economy, when the people who have actually taken trillions from us as taxpayers have not been asked to be accountable one iota. I don't presume to have the answer to the questions that the Occupy people are raising, but I do have one question to ask in response. If we presume to be a Protestant Christian nation, why are we so afraid of protest? I would understand someone suggesting that Jimmy Stewart might be an odd choice for a different drummer in a show where I'm essentially talking about things that have really happened well after his death or taking a position that's, you know, decidedly centrist perhaps on a bad on a bad moment decidedly liberal with a man whose political views were, you know, pretty much conservative. Jimmy Stewart might not agree with me that the size of our military outweighs It's true usefulness. If we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, according to our Constitution, our charter, and what our founding fathers truly believed, he had a more military perspective than that, being someone who served in the military and I think ultimately retired, was promoted to uh, the rank of major general by President Reagan. So there's going to be places where, from a political perspective, from an idea perspective, it might not be on the same page, nor do I want to imply in any way that the film direction, of some of the greatest directors who've ever lived, and the scripts that they chose and the writers behind those scripts necessarily reflect the ideas of Jimmy Stewart. But for me, and even more so for my wife, Stewart managed to find himself in roles that spoke to us. There was a generation separating us, so I'm willing to allow that generational difference to explain some of the you know differences of opinion we might have about culture and society and even politics. But I know that when this man played certain roles those roles spoke to me the best example of course for this topic of protest is frank capra's film mr smith goes to washington jimmy stewart played in three of capra's films one of them won best picture it was an early film for stewart he didn't get a lot of acting accolades for that but in the other two he was nominated so he did some of his best work uh, with frank capra most people, of course, know It's a Wonderful Life, a film that has you know a, pretty much a great national admiration in the United States and a few fair detractors. I've heard uh, It's a Wonderful Life described as film noir by the Out of the Past podcast, and they make a compelling point. It's not necessarily the feel-good movie of any particular wintertime, even though it's broadcast on TV as if it should be held in that regard. And yet it's one of the films that I do try to watch on at least an every other year basis. But Mr. Smith goes to Washington as the one I think that applies best here. A novice, you know, not part of the political power structure. After a, an office is vacated due to scandal or death or something, is appointed to the. US Senate by a governor, uh, a governor who is either um, unaware of how you know, what was going on in Washington. Or someone who felt like maybe it would be strategically good to put somebody there who didn't really know what was going on. Somebody who would do as he was told, because he was in over his head or confused. And in the movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, the story unfolds that this, you know, politically inexperienced novice figures out what's going on. Finds himself in the midst of some very bad government. And at the expense of potential self-sacrifice, the expense of his reputation, perhaps even his safety, stands up, draws a line and says, no this will stop in other words the character mr smith in that film decided to occupy the u.s senate do we watch mr smith goes to washington with a sense that it's an evil subversive film that should be banned at all costs because it's representing horrific un-american ideas or do we recognize that it really is a very good film one that, despite perhaps being a little simple and a little sentimental, it is, after all, Frank Capra movie, is saying that sometimes the right thing to do is to stand up and protest. And that we would rather be an American with people who behaved in a civilly disobedient way than American by hitching our wagon to the richest horse we can find and swallowing all sorts of things, including pride and ethics, to make sure that we've picked the winner. Jimmy Stewart was born in the western part of central Pennsylvania, in Indiana, Pennsylvania. He went to Princeton University, at the time an all-male school, where he served on the cheerleading squad and um, the Triangle Club, which was a student acting group. In fact, it says in one of the bios, he performed accordion for the Triangle Club. Something about that I find really incredibly appealing, especially for a man who would grow up later in life to be a World War II fighter pilot flying several missions and training others on the art of being a fighter pilot over Germany during the Second World War in the European theater. Most of us, of course, though, remember Jimmy Stewart for his work in film. So allow me to name drop a few directors, and then I want to walk through some of these movies. He worked with Alfred Hitchcock, Frank Capra, Billy Wilder, Otto Preminger, John Ford, some of the giants of film directing. The earliest Jimmy Stewart film I can remember seeing was a post-war movie. It's a Wonderful Life, approximately 1946. But before that, I've since gone back to see earlier films by him. The Shop Around the Corner from 1940, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington 1939. He won the Best Actor Oscar for uh, The Philadelphia Story in 1940. All of this part of the black and white Hollywood system. But there's something kind of ironic about Jimmy Stewart in that The contracts that he negotiated for himself as an actor after the war had a lot to do with breaking down the studio system. He was one of the first actors to trade in what would have been um, his salary for appearing in film for a share of the movies themselves. As is described in Wikipedia, Stewart's starring role in the Western Winchester 73 was also a turning point in Hollywood. Universal Studios, who wanted Stewart to appear both in that film and in Harvey, balked at his $200,000 asking price. Stewart's agent, Lou Wasserman, brokered an alternate deal in which Stewart would appear in both films for no pay in exchange for a percentage of the profits uh, and the cast and director approval. This wasn't the first such deal at Universal. Uh, Abbott and Costello had one similar. But this would ultimately lead to what has been described as the undermining of the decaying studio system. Well, the key film there mentioned, in my mind, is Harvey. Stewart came back from the war, filmed uh, movies like, well, frankly, It's a Wonderful Life was not a huge box office hit, and some of his other films were unsuccessful. And in a way of trying to evaluate whether to continue being an actor or to go into a different line of work, Stewart ended up performing in the play Harvey on Broadway. Now, Harvey is the play about a man who somewhat witlessly has a relationship with an imaginary seven foot tall rabbit and how uh, his uh, eccentricities are endangering the social standing of the rest of his family. He performed Harvey on stage for three years and even then was not necessarily the first choice for Hollywood when it came to filming the uh, play and putting it in the movies. He did end up getting the part though. And to me, it's one of the most complex endearing and uh, meaningful roles of his career around the same time that he made Harvey though he began an association with Alfred Hitchcock appearing in rope the first color film that Hitchcock shot in America after collaborating with producer David O. Selznick for three or four films after moving to Hollywood Um, so Stewart would then you know in this relationship with Hitchcock appear in three other films all of which extremely influential Stewart had the starring role in Rear Window, the remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much and Vertigo. Other noteworthy films following the Hitchcock period, Anatomy of a Murder with out, made by Otto Preminger, really one of the better um, courtroom dramas that uh, I've ever seen and you know from for its time influential uh, courtroom drama that has left its mark on a lot of films and TV shows that have followed. And the other one that I'll mention is probably the Jimmy Stewart movie that I want to watch most that I haven't seen yet. I've got a copy. I just haven't put it in and queued it up. It's a Western called The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Uh, There was an online conversation uh, about a week ago uh, looking at the IMDb website and their top 250 movies based on um, user user rankings and just the IMDb index itself. And the question was, how many of the movies in the top 250 have you seen? Well, going all the way back to the 50th inappropriate appropriate conversation, I'm sure I've made clear that I'm a fan of movies. I think that film is a very good way of communicating. It's the the most significant art form that has come into existence in the last hundred years or so, and in some ways, it's the art form that I'm going to sample the most often, given a choice of, of anything that I could do, from you know reading poetry to going to an art gallery to um, you know, going to a rock concert or a classical music recital, I'm going to probably go with the movies more often than not. And that's reflected in the fact that I've seen 175 or so of that top 205, 250 list. But the thing I noticed when looking at the pattern of, well, what's the highest ranked movie I haven't seen yet? And of all the movies in the top 50 and top 100 that I've missed, is there a genre that's represented more there than any other? And it's the Western. This caught me off guard a little bit. I mean, I spent a lot of time in what we would call the American Southwest. I have a familiarity with the stereotypes of the Western and pretty sure I've seen a lot of Western films just over the course of you know, living in my family and watching television. But I don't remember seeing the man who shot Liberty Valance. And that would be very high on my list of Jimmy Stewart movies to take in. And by the way, the uh, the highest ranked movie in that IMDB list of the top 50 movies that I haven't seen Sitting squarely at number four on the day I looked, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. has nothing to do with Jimmy Stewart, and I secretly think that I may get just as much out of the man who shot Liberty Valance as I will out of the Sergio Leone spaghetti western. We'll have to see. I do know one thing for certain, without any question in my mind, if I want to watch one of those two westerns with my wife, the Jimmy Stewart film is a sure thing. So what should the church do about the Occupy movement? What would the conservative evangelical church recommend? And how would we react to that? Is this a group of people who are protecting the powerful? Or are they truly Protestants trying to find a way to make sure that the everyday person has access to the means of survival? It's an interesting question. I'm going to suggest that the right answer might be for us to occupy our churches just as much as we're occupying Wall Street or the mall in Washington, D.C. Quoting again from Diana Butler Bass Protestant churches would benefit by starting a church based protest movement to challenge two things bad government and cruel capitalism. It's not that there's something inherently wrong with capitalism. It's not that the American way of governing is completely broken and has to be blown up and started over, either by a Tea Party-type movement or an Occupy Wall Street-type movement. We just have to do it better. How? It's time to put the protest back into Protestantism. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com and comments are enabled at the Podbean website, http colon slash inappropriateconversationspodbeancom Thanks for listening.